Hello and welcome to Musings on History, episode 4.6, Pandemics. to musings on history. So based on a tweet that I made about how the novel coronavirus, also called COVID-19, is spreading similar to the spread of bubonic plague, I then decided to do a special episode on the history of global pandemics. I've always felt that history tends to repeat itself in interesting ways, so I use history as a guide to understand a phenomena that's happening in the present day. So this episode, I'm going to talk about the bubonic plague of the 14th to 17th centuries, the Spanish influenza pandemic of 1918-1919, and the HIV pandemic of the 1980s and 1990s. Chapter 1, From Port to Starboard, The Trail of the Bubonic Plague. So the Black Death is one of the more famous pandemics because of its virulence and the fact that it was spread by bacteria rather than a virus like the other two pandemics I'll be discussing. The bubonic plague is caused by the bacteria Yersinia pestis, which is carried by rodents like marmots, gerbils, yes, gerbils, um, and Asiatic rodents via their fleas, which is how it is then spread to humans. So 1331 is the first recorded outbreak of bubonic plague, which happened in southern China, and it's marked by the bubos, that give it its name, that rise on the skin and eventually like crack and bleed out. And it's just so gross. The Mongols, who were the lords of the steppe, carried these fleas with them when they conquered the Huan dynasty in China in the 13th century. And this plague outbreak is generally thought to have hastened the Golden Horde's retreat from southern China, forcing them to look westward to expand. In the siege of Kaffa, now known as the Ukrainian city of Feodosia, many historians believe Biological warfare was what brought bubonic plague to Europe via the Genoese naval forces that were fighting against the Mongols to lift the siege. The Mongols, who were already losing the battle inside the city, resulted to catapulting dead bodies into the Genoese camp. When the surviving Genoese sailors returned home, they brought the fleas and the plague with them. So Genoa is a port city on the west coast of the Italian peninsula, and in medieval times, it was one of the primary crossroads for European, Eurasian, Middle Eastern, and Far Eastern, that is, Indian and Chinese, trade. This made Genoa ground zero for the spread of plague as these sailors, some of whom were asymptomatic carriers, made their way to Constantinople, which is now called Istanbul, India, China, and all over Europe. From Genoa, the plague spread to this island of Sicily, and the city of Pisa was also overrun, which established it in northern Italy in the Tuscan region. Pisa is another port city situated on the river Arno and facing the Ligurian Sea. Pisa's location made it a hub for trade with France, which then led to the spread of plague to that country. 
Italy has long been a hot spot for pandemics, mostly because as a peninsula, it's connected to several different areas by sea. In medieval Europe, Italian city-states made their fortunes through trade, and so they were more exposed to whatever the foreign sailors brought with them when they disembarked. And even in non-port cities like Aosta, Vicenza, and Tarviso, which is on the border with Austria and Slovenia, were transport areas to spread plague because they traded goods across the Alps, which would have served as a natural barrier otherwise. As I said earlier, France was later inundated with plague and Spain was hit particularly hard because of the warm climate. July 1348 was the deadliest month in the history of medieval Spain, with 15,000 people dying in that one month. It was a record that would not be broken until the Spanish influenza epidemic of 1918. As in Italy, plague spread primarily through port cities such as the city of Marseille, where Genoese galleys were turned back in 1347, but it was too late. If there's any lesson to be learned from the bubonic plague, that containment should happen before there are reported cases. Afterwards, it's a moot point. Interestingly enough, Basque country, situated in the Western Pyrenees, again, mountains being a natural barrier to disease, did not have many cases of plague, even though the area extends out into the Bay of Biscay, because the Basque, at this time, did not engage in very much trade with either their French or Spanish neighbors, nor did they utilize their position on the Bay of Biscay to engage in trade with England or the rest of Northern Europe. Some Northern European cities, like London and England, Antwerp in the Low Countries, Galway in Scotland, Bergen in Norway, and Bremen, Lübeck, and Kiel in Germany were affected by plague and spread it throughout continental Northern Europe. However, the cold climate of Scandinavia, coupled with the more agrarian economy that didn't conduct as much trade as Southern and Central Europe, acted as a check on the spread of bubonic plague in Scandinavian countries. The plague continued to hit Europe in successive waves, usually every 10 years until the mid-1600s. The last major outbreak hit England and France in the 1640s and killed about a million people in boat in each country. Plague also spread throughout the Muslim world, starting again in port cities in heavily concentrated areas, just like it did in Europe. From Constantinople in the aforementioned Kaffa, it reached Mecca in present-day Saudi Arabia, Baghdad and Mosul in present-day Iraq and Alexandria and Egypt in 1349. The Sahara Desert mostly prevented the spread of the plague into sub-Saharan Africa, but plague cases were also recorded in coastal cities such as Dar es Salaam in present-day Tanzania and Mogadishu in present-day Somalia. These cases mostly came about due to trade across the Indian Ocean in the Gulf of Aden rather than through European contacts. But North Africa's cases of plague were generally attributed to Mediterranean trade with Italy and Spain. In port cities and heavily populated areas like Baghdad and Istanbul, plague outbreaks were recorded well into the 19th century. Chapter 2. First comes war, then comes pestilence. World War I and Spanish Influenza. The Spanish influenza or H1N1 virus is one of the most deadly pandemics in recorded history, Affecting, infecting rather, approximately 27% of the world's population and killing upwards of 100 million people. That's why I find it odd that people are generally not as familiar with it as they are other pandemics and why the history of its spread is not discussed more often. But fear not musers, that's why I'm here. Me and all the other third-rate podcasters that are just trying to be heard. 
H1N1 is a strain of influenza that spreads just as rapidly as other strains, but it's particularly deadly, hence that astronomical death toll I just told you about. Most influenzas have pretty high infection rates, mostly because the influenza virus and all its strains is spread through more forms of contact. But H1N1 has the added kick to being just as deadly for young adults as it is for the elderly and children because of its tendency to cause cytokine storms. Cytokine storms are like an uh, overreaction, basically, by your immune system. It's an inflammatory response from the immune system that can cause fever, fatigue, loss of appetite, body aches, vomiting, diarrhea, rashes, shortness of breath, low blood pressure, seizures, comas. I mean, you get the picture, right? So generally, influenza causes like body aches, fever, and maybe shortness of breath. Uh, The fewer symptoms you experience, then the easier it is to treat you and keep you alive. But when you have a cytokine storm, you might suffer from any number of symptoms all at once, which makes it a lot harder to treat you. It's hard to treat the dehydration when the patient also has the runs, you know? That's what makes H1N1 and now this novel coronavirus so scary. The potential for a cytokine storm in an otherwise not immunocompromised individual. So young people who are in immunocompromised or immunosuppressed the way children and the elderly tend to be stand the best ch- usually stand the best chance of fighting off infection and not dying of like dehydration or fluid in the lungs. But with Spanish influenza, that was not the case. Spanish flu got its name not because of the epicenter of the disease happened in Spain, but because of politics. Most historians and scientists trace Spanish flu to an army base in Hasco, Kansas. So sorry about that, Spain. See, when the U.S. entered World War I, public opinion was not entirely on the side of the Warhawks. Americans felt like they were better off leaving Europeans to slaughter each other over their 400-year-old beefs. And others believed that the sinking of the American passenger ship Lusitania, the American pretext to declaring war on Germany, was a staged event designed to bring the U.S. into the war. And musers, they might not have been wrong. See, the U.S. was officially neutral in World War I, but the capitalist classes in both the U.S. and the U.K. looked at all that carnage and thought, well, of course we have to find a way to profit from this. So wealthy manufacturing magnates, whose names I'm not going to mention because I am job hunting, wanted to sell war material to the Allies, which at the time consisted of France, Belgium, the Russian Empire, the Netherlands, and Great Britain, and I think Italy, but when was the last time Italy was a major player in a global conflict? Probably like Constantine. But the neutral means neutral, just like Brexit is supposed to mean Brexit. So the American industrialists had to settle for selling consumer goods to the Allies. Of course, the U.S. has never made a promise they ever intended to keep, And soon, the German Empire found out that the Americans were smuggling guns and other war materials to allies in passenger ships. And they very politely asked the Americans to either stop smuggling or sell to both sides. As selling to one side violates neutrality because it's kind of taking a side. And really, the Germans were very polite when they asked this, just like they were extremely polite when they asked Belgium if they could, like, march their army through the country so that they could invade France. And I'm not just saying this because I'm a Teutonophile. Like, I've read these war dispatches, and they were very friendly when they asked. 
The Germans asked this of the Americans on multiple occasions, and the last time they warned them that they suspected that an American ship, regardless of what the manifest said, was smuggling war material to the Brits, they were going to torpedo it. And that would be considered wartime posturing, right? So what did the industrialists do? Well, they filled a passenger ship with thousands of civilians from various countries, loaded some guns and other supplies on the ship in secret, and sent 1,100 people, 128 of them American, to their deaths. So isn't that nice? But anyway, I realize I got off on a tangent there. Sorry. World War I is a very fascinating time period for me. Long story short... Certain demographics, Jimmy rigged a way to get the U.S. into a war that most Americans were not really interested in getting in. And then when the influenza epidemic started taking people out left, right, and center all across Europe, to maintain confidence, they censored news of the pandemic from allied and central powers, since they figured people would immediately demand that their sons be brought back home. But they did allow the news of the pandemic spread to come from neutral countries like Spain, So that is the not really all that long story of how Spanish flu got its name. Now on to how the Spanish flu showed its ass. As I said earlier, the Spanish flu actually started in Fort Riley, Kansas. An army cook fell sick in March 1918 and within days, 522 service members were also ill. Why has it always got to be the cooks? Typhoid Mary was a cook too. That makes me want to stay home and eat spaghetti we got spaghetti in there then the flu spread to queens new york that same month and then it followed the american soldiers sailors and airmen and marines over there over there where an even more virulent strain of the virus hit breast france freetown sierra leone and dublin ireland brought there by returning irish soldiers The rest of the world outside Europe was then exposed to the virus by what else? Colonialism. British troops who had gone from being stationed in France went to be stationed throughout the Commonwealth and brought the virus with them. In Ghana, 100,000 people died. In Ethiopia and British Somaliland, the death toll was nearly 7% of their population. In New Zealand, 6,400 Europeans and 2,500 Maoris died in two weeks. 300,000 died in Brazil, 80,000 in Iran, 50,000 in Canada. India was one of the hardest hit areas with 13.88 million deaths in the British control areas. War not only helped the spread of the virus, it helped to become more virulent over time. See, natural selection favors the weaker strains of viruses because of the propensity for the host to recover from the illness but also spread it. In war, natural selection favors the stronger strain because those with the weaker strain stay on the front lines where, yes, they spread it, but they only spread it to their fellow soldiers who are probably going to die of something else real soon anyway. Those with the stronger strain get sent back to overcrowded field hospitals and they're packed together on these rail cars And so these field hospitals are much closer to civilian populations because they're far away from the front. And that provides a much wider population base for a virus to spread. The Spanish flu had two waves, the first affecting young people the most and the second affecting older people the most. 
One of the more curious cases was the low amount of deaths the Chinese had from Spanish flu. Outside of the British-controlled port cities of Shanghai, Harbin, Peking, which is now called Beijing, and Hong Kong, and Canton, there were hardly any cases of Spanish flu, and the mortality rate for the cases that did exist was much lower. So China at this time was in the midst of like the warlord period after the British had the British, Americans, Australians, and a bunch of other people had um, taken down the last dynasty. And so the relative isolation that these different regions of China had because there was no centralized government might have played a part in why the Chinese weren't exposed, exposed to as much Spanish flu. Chapter 3, Heads in the Sand, the HIV-AIDS Pandemic. So as the chapter title suggests, the last pandemic I'm going to discuss is the HIV-AIDS pandemic. HIV, or human immunodeficiency virus, is the virus that causes a spectrum of illnesses which, left untreated, progress to AIDS, or acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. Following infection, a person may either undergo an asymptomatic period or a brief flu-like illness. As the infection progresses, the immune system becomes more compromised, leading to increased respiratory illnesses and the development of tumors that are otherwise rare in normal immune systems. These are called opportunistic infections, and those are usually associated with progression to full-blown AIDS. Thus, most treatments for HIV are designed to bolster the immune system so that an infected person does not progress to AIDS. HIV is a retrovirus, meaning it inserts a copy of its genome into the DNA of a host body cell, changing the genome of that cell. HIV is spread through unprotected sex, blood transfusions, needle sharing, and from mother to baby in utero delivery and through breastfeeding. Saliva, sweat, and tears do not transmit HIV. The first recorded case of HIV in the U.S. was in June 1981. All five cases were gay men who used needles to take drugs and exhibited symptoms of PCP, a rare pneumonia only known to occur in people with severely compromised immune systems. Soon after, these men and other gay men began to develop a severe and rare skin cancer called Kaposi sarcoma, also not seen in people who did not have severely compromised immune systems. In the early 1980s, HIV was called 4-H because it was thought to only affect four groups, homosexuals, hypodermic needle users, hemophiliacs, and Haitians. Upon discovering that the disease did not only affect these groups, it was called AIDS by July 1982. In 1983, scientists Robert Gallo and Luc Montagnier discovered that HIV was a retrovirus and called it LAV, which they later call HIV. So HIV-1 and HIV-2 are believed to have originated in primates in West Central Africa, and those who either ate or sold bushmeat, that is monkey meat, were carriers of the relatively weak virus SIV, a cousin of HIV. However, Due to colonialism, SIV, which Native Africans had generally built a resistance to or weren't exposed to because they didn't eat bushmeat, was spread through prostitution to Europeans where it mutated into HIV. As many as 45% of female residents of Kinshasa, which is where HIV is thought to have originated, were engaged in sex work by 1928, so SIV quickly became HIV. 
The world's earliest documented case of HIV was in Congo in 1959, and the earliest documented case of AIDS was in 1966 in Norway. Post-World War II, the misuse of hypodermic needles and other unsafe practices is thought to have spread HIV throughout Africa. Several African countries were engaged in wars of independence and civil wars at this time in the 20th century, and war usually exacerbates the spread of disease. After Congo declared its independence in 1960, the UN recruited francophones from around the world to fill administrative gaps in the new Congolese government, as the Belgians never bothered to cultivate a Congolese elite during colonialism. Haitians were the largest non-Congolese French-speaking group in Congo during this time, numbering about 5,000 individuals, and they mostly went back to Haiti after about 10 years in Congo. So this is how Haitians became exposed to HIV and unfairly associated with it. From Haiti, the disease spread to the United States through what were called high-risk individuals, namely men who went to Haiti and the Dominican Republic to have sex with other men and do drugs, and then come back to the U.S., The global response to the HIV-AIDS epidemic raged from sluggish to downright cruel. As the general public became more aware of the disease, it led to discrimination against gay men, Haitians, and sub-Saharan Africans. Even as heterosexual transmission rates climbed and eventually dominated over homosexual transmission rates, HIV-AIDS was still regarded as a gay man's disease by misinformed and uninformed people. Several religious leaders, like the Catholic Church, called it a condemnation for homosexuality, and most world governments didn't seem to press to address the pandemic throughout the 1980s and early 1990s. By 1995, almost 10 million people worldwide had been diagnosed, and by 2009, the death toll was 30 million, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. Health organizations like the World Health Organization are still fighting the misinformation war about HIV AIDS, dispelling myths like sex with a virgin can cure the disease or that only gay men and drug users can get it. A particularly heinous group are the deniers. And from 1999 to 2005, the official policy of the government of South Africa was to deny that HIV AIDS was a real illness a policy that led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people and the infections of tens of thousands more. Chapter four. So what have we learned? Not much, to be honest. Some users, what has the world learned from bubonic plague, Spanish influenza, and the HIV AIDS pandemic? Well, if recent events surrounding the novel coronavirus are any indication, not much. From the bubonic plague, we should have learned that uh, more effective containment policies from the Spanish flu, we should have learned not to try and isolate the virus to one group as viruses are very resilient and change frequently to adapt to conditions and keep hosts. We should have also learned that social isolation is key. But if my Instagram feed is any indication, we did not learn that lesson either. From the HIV AIDS pandemic, we should have learned how important it is not to stigmatize groups of people being a, um, and for governments to be proactive in their approach and be a source of reliable and factual information. But I fear that until we learn these lessons, pandemics will continue to happen. But hey, the canals of Venice are looking very clean. So, you know, we got that. 
Next episode, I will be closing out the Terms We Misuse series with the second half of socialism. Until then, stay safe, wash your hands, and join me next time for more Musings on History.